Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode number 11 of the podcast in which we will examine chapter 9 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe titled In the Witch's House. And last chapter, in chapter 8, we saw the Pevensey children after they had had dinner with the Beavers, where they uh, learned from Mr. Beaver about these ancient prophecies that he recites to the children about Aslan's coming, that, that wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight, at the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more, and so on. And Mr. Beaver informs the children of how Adam's flesh and Adam's bone must sit enthroned at Care Paravel. When that happens, Aslan will move, the curse will be lifted, the snow and ice will thaw, and Narnia will be redeemed in many ways, that spring will renew and reawaken the true Narnia, and Aslan will seat on the throne the true kings and queens of Narnia, which goes all the way back to when we get to the magician's nephew, we'll see that the very first king and queen of Narnia were humans, Frank and Helen. King Frank and Queen Helen uh, from England are made the first kings and queens. And this is a Genesis uh, account connection that Lewis is making, how human beings were given the governorship of the world. That God, of course, is the ruler of all heaven and all earth, that he is the, uh, the sovereign over the entire cosmos, but that he has made man in his image and has given us the domain to rule and to cultivate and to flourish. And so when Aslan moves, he will make the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve kings and queens. At the end of that chapter, though, we discover that Edmund, the betrayer, has sneaked out of the beaver's home and, uh, as we will discover in this chapter, is beginning to make his long trek to the White Witch's palace. At the beginning of chapter 9 in the Witch's House, we get one of these great moments from C.S. Lewis as the narrator, where he breaks the fourth wall and confides in the reader. Um, he will do this in a very emotionally tinged moment later in the novel when Aslan is led to the stone table and Lucy and Susan follow him, where the narrator will confide directly into the, to the reader in this warm and comforting uh, narrative voice. And Alan Jacobs, who is a Lewis scholar, he wrote a book called The Narnian uh, that is just a wonderful book. But he talks about how Lewis himself, as the writer and as the narrator, has this rather warm, avuncular, sort of uh, intimate voice with his readership. And in the opening line of chapter nine, he says, and now, of course, you want to know what had happened to Edmund. And Jacobs credits a lot of the success of the Narnia books, especially with children, to the power and the depth and the merits of Lewis's narrative voice that he just has a way of speaking to children and he has a way of speaking directly to his reader with these sorts of sentences like the one at the beginning of this chapter. And now, of course, you want to know what had happened to Edmund. That it's a way of carrying the story forward by bringing and inviting the reader in to discover what just has happened and what is about to happen in a way that is direct and simple and plain, but also enchanting and warm and engaging as well. Uh, this technique that Lewis uses as well, where he is uh, splitting the plot 
and the characters of a rather large cast of characters, splitting them up into smaller groups and having their separate stories stream uh, at the same time and his narrative bouncing from one uh, character's development to the other is called interlacing. And here what has happened is that he has separated Edmund away from his siblings in order to devote an entire chapter to his story while we know that the events of the previous chapter are ongoing. That as in chapter eight, we watch Peter and Susan and Lucy and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver exit the home and begin to head out searching for Edmund and then going to meet Aslan, we get a chapter with a separate story going on. Uh, Tolkien does the same sort of thing in The Lord of the Rings where he'll have different figures in the fellowship break apart and their stories will be followed at different pieces of the plot. The same thing is happening here that gives space for Lewis to be able to, to provide adequate character development, that we want to be able to see Edmund's character grow. And in order to do that, we need to separate him from the group and watch his own private encounters so that we can start to empathize with him, start to discover more of his character. And that's what will happen in this chapter. Lewis will certainly show us Edmund at the moment of his betrayal, when he arrives at the White Witch's castle and confesses to her that they are in Narnia, all four of them, and even admits to her that he had heard something about Aslan, which of course enrages the White Witch. So we see Edmund at his lowest point, but we also see uh, Lewis describing these things about Edmund that humanize him, or at least make him um, relatable, empathetic. Uh, of course, we don't sympathize with his wrongdoing, but he certainly goes to lengths to humanize Edmund as a complex character. He is not a flat, one-dimensional character that is strictly evil always. We see Edmund in this almost near repentance, this contrite state, not enough to undo uh, the action he's engaging in, but enough for us to see him as a realistic character. But before that, the opening lines of chapter 9, Lewis says this, And now, of course, you want to know what had happened to Edmund. He had eaten his share of the dinner, but he hadn't really enjoyed it, because he was thinking all the time about Turkish delight. And there's nothing that spoils the taste of good, ordinary food half so much as the memory of bad magic food. Now, this is a really important point uh, that Lewis continues to return to with a lot of different elements to it. The first element is the recollection of the curse of the Turkish delight that we saw several chapters ago, how Edmund was ensnared by the White Witch's designs and her schemes through this very potent but also very hollow uh, image of enchantment and of magic, the, what Lewis calls here bad magic, uh, dark magic, evil magic, that which has the superficial trappings and appearances and the lure of, of wonder and of magic and of fulfillment, but actually is quite hollow underneath it. Now, remember, when he was eating it, it tasted glorious, he thought but yet it created within him this craving and this aching that would never again quite be satisfied in the same way. And this moment here that Lewis uh, brings to our attention is this idea of pleasure and beauty and joy and fulfillment and contentment mattering. These things matter deeply, not only to our physical lives, 
that we enjoy good food and we enjoy good music and camaraderie and fellowship, but that these all have theological uh, significance and meanings to them. And in that short statement where we see Edmund had eaten dinner with the beavers and with his siblings, but he hadn't enjoyed it because his mind was uh, poisoned by the memory of Turkish delight. That is a very important point to the Christian, where so much of our flourishing and our growth as Christians is in our enjoyment of God in and through the things that God has made. There's a fantastic book on this subject written by Joe Rigney called The Things of Earth. I think Crossway publishes it. The Things of Earth by Joe Rigney, where he is putting forward a case of enjoying God and loving God and knowing God, desiring God in and through the things that God has made. Psalm 34 talks about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. This goes right in line with John Piper's famous Christian hedonism, uh, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That Lewis is bringing that, the spotlight toward things like satisfaction, enjoyment, delight, uh, the way it ought to be had, the way it ought to be experienced, which is uh, the rather ordinary on the outside, yet deeply moving on the inside experiences that we all have. Good food, laughter, robust psalm singing, music, dancing, fire in the fireplace, uh, a warm evening with friends. These are the things that God has given us to enjoy, and they are things that we can see him through. They are Uh, To use another Lewis image, these are sunbeams that we see that that guide us and lead us back to the source, the sun, that we are able to experience him in and through these little glimpses of him in ordinary good things that are not so ordinary at all. And yet Edmund is on the outside of those experiences. He can't engage in them because his mind has been addled and uh, benighted by the memory of Turkish delight. Lewis says, there's nothing that spoils the taste of good, ordinary food, half so much as the memory of bad, magic food. What what has made the witch's trickery and her schemes so destructive is that they create within Edmund a desire that can never be satisfied. It creates this cyclical, toxic uh, aching and longing in his heart for that which will never be enough. Uh, his stomach has become an empty well, that his uh, his desires have been placed out of order. And uh, he's not going to be able to recover from that apart from the grace of God. This reminds me of a passage from uh, an earlier work of Lewis's, the Screwtape Letters, where Screwtape and Wormwood, these demons in hell who are corresponding back and forth, are discussing the nature of pleasure and how they are lamenting that pleasure in and of itself is a creation of God. God, what Lewis says in Mere Christianity, God likes matter. He created it. God likes the pleasures of this ordinary life. And in the Screwtape letters, Screwtape tells Wormwood this. He says, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground, meaning on God's ground. These are demons. Listen to that again. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure 
in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground, on God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. Mark that. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. And this is what Edmund is caught right in the middle of. An ever-growing craving for a quickly fading feel. The Turkish delight is long since gone, and yet the memory of it, the craving of it, the desire for it, is still right at the core of his being. It is a sin that has gone to the very top. And because of that, his entire lens, his entire worldview is shattered. He can't enjoy anything. What Lewis says is that he can't enjoy the dinner he's had with the beavers, which if you'll remember the way that Lewis described that, it sounds breathtaking with toast and butter and ale and all these wonderful things that Mr. Beaver uh, provides. And he says there's nothing that spoils that half so much as the memory of bad magic food. He goes on. And he had heard the conversation and hadn't enjoyed it much either because he kept on thinking that the others were taking no notice of him and trying to give him the cold shoulder. They weren't, but he imagined it. Notice Edmund here that he can't enjoy the dinner and the good food and the joyful communion with his siblings and with the beavers because of the memory of Turkish delight, this ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure as Lewis calls it in Screwtape. Now it says he had heard the conversation about Aslan and prophecies and things of deep importance, kings and queens, spring returning to Narnia. He couldn't enjoy that either because he kept on thinking the others were taking no notice of him. Notice the self-absorption and the self-centeredness that has gripped Edmund at the core, that he couldn't enjoy the conversation over dinner because it w- not enough of it was about him. It's like the sour high school student who can't enjoy all of the memories and all of the highlights and all of the experiences in his yearbook because there aren't enough pictures of him in it, right? It's this idea that the whole thing is ruined. All of it's ruined because not enough of it is centered on me and my felt needs and my desires and how I play a part in things that Edmund has been reduced to an obsession with the self, which is exactly how the forces of evil work. They try to reduce all of the glory of this great story God is telling by having us focus on the part we play in it and how I might be the hero of it. Remember, Edmund, up until this point, and in a moment when he escapes and heads to the White Witch's Palace, will think nothing of, will think about nothing except what he'll do when he's king. But that when I'm king, I'm going to make uh, safe roads and I'm going, to make, uh, I'm going to make Peter do so many different things. That He is living in this world of uh, complete solipsism and narcissism where he is just the center of his universe and that is what the White Witch has done for him 
in order to get him to do her bidding, to reduce the part he plays in a very grand drama with Aslan as the true king and all of Narnian history and all of the redemption of it unfolding. And Edmund has a part to play. He has a throne at Ker Piravel waiting for him. And the White Witch has seduced him into thinking all of it is about him and not about that grand drama that he's been invited into. At the end of that paragraph, he, uh, Lewis says, For the mention of Aslan gave him, Edmund, a mysterious and horrible feeling, just as it gave the others a mysterious and lovely feeling. This goes back to that notion of the numinous, that all of the children are responding to Aslan's name. Everybody responds to the name of Aslan, just as everybody responds to the name of Jesus. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. No one is exempt from an earth-shattering, life-altering response to the name of Jesus. Everyone will respond. It's just a matter of when. Mark Lowry says that uh, in, at one point, he said, um, it's not a question of whether or not you'll admit that Jesus is Lord. It's a question of when will you? Because the Bible promises every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, everyone will know. The truth will rise. Uh, Paul talks about that in Romans 1, that the, the truth cannot remain suppressed for long. It's like trying to keep a beach ball underwater. Uh, it wants to be known. And here, the name of Aslan provokes great response. In Peter, Susan, and Lucy, it's a mysterious and lovely feeling. But in Edmund, it's a mysterious and horrible feeling. And he sneaks out, headed to the White Witch's palace. On his way there, we get some of what I mentioned earlier, where Lewis invites us to see Edmund as not a purely evil character in one sense. He's certainly caught in the grip of his sin. Absolutely. He must be redeemed and his sin must be atoned for. But here we also see the side of Edmund where he is um, being broken and he is being moved toward uh, the conditions necessary to be redeemed. At the bottom of uh, a couple paragraphs later, he says about Edmund, he did not want Turkish delight. I'm sorry, he did want Turkish delight and to be a prince and later a king and to pay Peter back for calling him a beast. As for what the witch would do with the others, he didn't want her to be particularly nice to them, certainly not to put them on the same level as himself, but he managed to believe or to pretend he believed that she wouldn't do anything very bad to them. And this is an interesting point for Edmund where he certainly wanted them to be punished. And he certainly wanted them to be subordinate to himself. He wanted to be a king, and he wanted Peter, Susan, and Lucy to do his bidding. But he also didn't want them to be turned to stone. He didn't want them to be damned. He didn't want them to be completely punished. And what this is is a false sense of temperance in Edmund, as though he has the virtue of temperance or moderation, where he doesn't want them to be turned to stone, but he also truly, if he were honest with himself, doesn't want them to be treated the same way he wants to be treated. He wants to be above them, but he also doesn't want them to be completely ruined. It's the same statement of the person that says, well, at least I'm not as bad as the next guy. I'm not the worst person in the story. And that is a, that, that's a claim that's easy for people to make where, well, no, I, I'm, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as he is, or at least I'm not as bad as she is. And it creates within us this false sense of virtue that we are somehow playing it right up the middle where, uh, no, I, and nobody's perfect. I grant that, but at least I'm not as bad as he is. And here Edmund's saying that, well, 
No, I I don't want them to be punished horribly, but I also don't want them to be given the same privileges and rights that I deserve and that I earn. He's still the center of his story, but he also wants this false sense of modesty with how the others are treated. When ultimately at his core, he knows that he's betraying them. The end of that paragraph where he's uh, trying to justify his actions, at the end, uh, Lewis says, it wasn't a very good excuse, however, for deep down inside him, he really knew that the white witch was bad and cruel. And this is important that Edmund starts saying, well, maybe she's not all that bad and uh, maybe Aslan will deserve it. And maybe when I'm king, I'll be able to make things better. And uh, I expect she's the true queen. She was rather nice to me. I don't think she's all that bad. But at the end, the honesty and the truth reveals itself. That it wasn't a very good excuse for deep down inside he really knew that the white witch was bad and cruel. For the next several paragraphs, we get a very intense and rather drawn out sequence of Edmund's trek up uh, to the white witch's lair in her castle. And I'll just, some of the language that Lewis uses, uses to describe it, he says it was growing darker every minute. Uh, Edmund could hardly see three feet ahead due to the snowfall. There was no road, which is really important if you contrast it with uh, Tolkien's obsession with the road that the hobbits take and the road that we are all destined to take. Uh, here, Edmund has found himself with no road that he is lost here. He kept slipping, skidding, tripping, sliding down. And he says the silence and the loneliness were dreadful. Almost to the point of repentance, Lewis says, in fact, I really think Edmund might have given up the whole plan and gone back and owned up and made friends with the others if he hadn't happened to say to himself, when I'm king of Narnia, the first thing I shall do will be to make some decent roads. So the conditions of this road are enough to prompt remorse and confession and repentance, which is good for Edmund, that the difficulty of this trek and the lostness of it, the darkness and the bleakness are providential. Devin Brown, in one of his books, talks about how this might be a sign of providence where Edmund is being uh, prepared, Edmund's path of suffering as a condition for repentance. It's like the prodigal son, where uh, his state and his life is being reduced to a point of despair in order to break him to the point of repentance. Uh, in Charles Dickens' book, Great Expectations, at the very end of it, one of his characters, Estella, has a very famous line where she says, I have been bent and broken, but I hope into a better shape. That this is the idea that perhaps life as a series of, of uh, difficulties and of suffering as a way of preparing us for mercy and grace and forgiveness, that you can't accept forgiveness without a contrite heart that we must be brought to a point of repentance and of remorse and sorrow over our sinful state in order to receive grace and mercy, that we have to die to ourselves. And Edmund is not quite prepared to that. He almost is. I really think he might have given up the whole plan, except he was caught up in this fantasy of being the king of Narnia and ruling all the others, that he is still in the fantasy of self-aggrandizement, that he is still in the, is serving the God of self, uh, which is what the white witch wanted, to wrap Edmund up in his own affairs so that he cannot see clearly what he is doing to his siblings, what he's doing to himself, and he just is uh, completely caught in the grip of this fantasy. 
and the silence and the loneliness he experiences were dreadful. He finally arrives at the uh, White Witch's castle. Too late to turn back. He has committed himself entirely to the betrayal. And uh, he sees in her courtyard the very opposite of what she had offered him, that this is a sterile wasteland of a palace. Uh, Her empire is littered with stones. There's nothing living here. There's no fertility. There's no life. Uh, Remember, she herself has no children. She is a sterile figure, pure white, uh, the cold marble statuesque figure that she is. But also we see all of these figures, and in fact, Edmund is quite scared of one at first because he sees the figure of a lion and thinks it's a real lion, and he's halted in his steps, and then he discovers it's a lion that has been turned to stone. And so he slowly creeps up to it and even has the gall to uh, vandalize it. He draws a mustache on it and a pair of spectacles to try to jeer at it and joke at it, this false sense of authority and of power, even though he had been scared to death by the image of this lion. Uh, And he even thinks it's Aslan at first. He says, maybe this is Aslan that she's turned to stone. Who's afraid of Aslan? So he tries to steal himself with this false sense of amusement. Uh, And there's this great passage Lewis has about when he realizes that the fun he's having at this lion's expense isn't all that great. Lewis says, but in spite of the scribbles on it, the face of the great stone beast still looked so terrible and sad and noble, staring up in the moonlight that Edmund didn't really get any fun out of jeering at it. Which is an important point, too. That we're Back to the statement of the dinner that Edmund had at the beginning of the chapter. Nothing tastes good. Edmund is in no position to enjoy anything. Because although he has not been t- turned to stone, his heart has been turned to stone. That's what happened. Everyone who meets the White Witch falls under her uh, tyranny and under her rule. And her rule is one where she turns others to stone. She robs them of their life. And Edmund here has a heart of stone and thus unable to enjoy anything, not even jeering at the enemy. That nothing is satisfying, which is a point about evil. Evil is banal. Evil is um, unsatisfying. By definition, it has to be. If evil satisfied at all, then it wouldn't be pure evil. Because only God's pleasure and only God's will and God's designs can satisfy. We were made for him. Our, as St. Augustine says in Confessions, uh, we are restless. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. That is the state of man. And Edmund is, is right in the middle of that. At the end of his jeering, he meets Mogram, the captain of the White Witch's secret police, this wolf who frightens Edmund. Notice that Edmund has only ever been frightened or lonely or scared or cold. He forgot his coat at the beaver, so he's cold. This whole journey is is described as one of discomfort, that it is miserable, that he is, it is not what he thought it would be. Her castle is not what he thought it would be. She is not what he thought she would be. When she meets him, she yells at him for having not brought the others. That the whole design that he had built for himself has turned out to not be at all what he planned. The whole thing has flipped on its head. And of course, he notices in her courtyard that she is not surrounded by uh, great uh, courtiers or nobles, great feasts, great banqueting halls. It's a sterile 
castle filled with statues. Which again reminds us of the screw tape letters, the philosophy of hell. What, what are the demons and the forces of evil after? They are after consuming the souls of mankind, ruining them, isolating them. It's like in The Great Divorce where Lewis pegs those in hell as those that are completely isolated from one another. Uh, Aslan is the figure of community. When we see Aslan in his camp, he is surrounded by many Narnians. But when we see the White Witch, she has one wolf guarding her, Mogram. Her sledge is guided by one dwarf. Uh, that Hers is a, an atmosphere of isolation. And another quote from the Screwtape Letters to show that, Screwtape says, To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. And this is what her turning people to stone does. It, it gives power to her by robbing power of another. A human is primarily food. The absorption of its will into ours is the aim. He later says that devils want cattle who can finally become food. That they want to uh, suck in all of the all of the power and all of the distinction and all of the identity of others and leave nothing but stone in its place, which is what the White Witch has done to all of those creatures in her courtyard, and it's what she's currently doing to Edmund, sucking out his soul and his heart and his desires with her schemes and her craftiness with the Turkish delight and leaving nothing but a heart of stone in its place. So thank you for listening. Uh, next week, we will look at chapter 10 in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled The Spell Begins to Break. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.